Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the launch of 9th SR Nathan Fellow, Mr. Ravi Menon's book, The Singapore Synthesis, Innovation, Inclusion, Inspiration. We are grateful to everyone for taking the time to join us today and are delighted to have Deputy Prime Minister and Coordinating Minister for Economic Policies, Mr. Heng Sui Kiet, here as our guest of honour. Mr. Janadas Devon, Director of IPS, will begin with his welcome remarks. He will be followed by DPM Heng and finally, Mr. Ravi Menon. We will then launch the book. Following the launch, there will also be a book signing session with Mr. Menon. But first, I would like to highlight a few housekeeping rules. Please keep your mask on when not eating or drinking, and please also switch your mobile phones to silent mode. For other distinguished guests, friends of IPS, and members of the public who could not join us in person today, we have invited them to tune in online to our Facebook page, where we are live streaming this event. This live stream can also be watched after the event on our IPS Facebook page and YouTube channel. Online purchase of Mr. Menon's book is now available on World Scientific Publishing's website. For the entire month of August, all volumes of the IPS Northern Lecture Series, including Mr. Menon's book, can be purchased online with a 20% discount. Enter the promo code WSIPS20 for 20% off your purchase. Now, without further ado, to kick off today's proceedings, Mr. Janadas Devon, Director of IPS, will deliver his welcome remarks. Director, please. Thank you. DPM. <laughs> DPM, uh, Ravi Menon, um, Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Mr. Dr. Danny Kua, distinguished guests and friends. Welcome to the launch of the Singapore Synthesis, Innovation, Inclusion and Inspiration. The book, as you know, is a collection of Ravi's four IPS Northern lectures and post-lecture discussions. Uh, held during his term as um, the SR Nathan Fellow. The SR Nathan Fellowship, as all of you know, was first announced in 2014 on the occasion of our 25th anniversary, and it was established to pay tribute to former President SR Nathan, whose long-time contributions to Singapore extended beyond his presidency. I'm happy to report that we have since completed 11 IPS Nathan Lecture Series, with our 10th fellow being former UN Undersecretary General Dr. Nolin Hazer, and our 11th, um, our veteran journalist and editor, uh, Patrick Daniel. Both Nolin and Patrick have completed their lectures, and their books will be published at the end of this year and early next year. After today, we would have launched a total of nine SR Nathan lecture books, uh, with Ravis being our latest. Um, our 12th SR Nathan Fellow is here, Professor Wang Gangwu, um, who is a university professor at the National University of Singapore, and perhaps the greatest and most distinguished scholar we have on this island. Um, um, he will schedule to begin his lectures um, in November 2022. Ravi. <laughs> Ravi is a busy man. His day job is not so simple, uh, as our guest of honor, <laughs> DPM, can attest. Um, he rejected my request to deliver these lectures, I think, three times. Um, I can't recall how I persuaded him finally, <laughs> um, but he, you know, I'm very glad he, he agreed. It is very strange, but 
economists, for some reason, um, many economists are very good writers. Uh, in the 20th century, uh, you have Maynard Keynes, of course, and then you have people like John Kenneth Galbraith. And of course, at the dawn of history, a dawn of economics as the subject, uh, what they used to call moral philosophy, um, um, Adam Smith was probably one of the best writers in the 18th century. And of course, in Singapore, strangely enough, um, some of our best writers have been economists. In my view, the best writer of English prose we have had is Dr. Go Kingsley, um, an economist, um, both by, and by training uh, as well as a practitioner. Um, and um, Dr. Go, as some of you would know, couldn't speak. He mumbled, um, which is why um, you can hardly ever see a single photograph of him at an election rally. He never graced an election rally after 1959, and then after that, he gave up campaigning. Um, but he wrote like an angel. Um, he didn't sound like one, but he, he wrote like an angel. Um, and Ravi is in that series of economists. And unlike Dr. Go, Ravi can also speak. <laughs> and as you would you know, realize if you had um, seen the, 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 the videos of his lectures. I looked up um, why economics was called moral philosophy um, for a very long time, actually until the early 20th century. And the reason was it was considered to be a study of what is right and what is wrong in overcoming scarcity and maximizing prosperity. So that's why it was called moral philosophy. And I think Ravi's book exemplifies that view of economics. It is, above all, an accounting of what is right and what is wrong um, in our conduct of economics. So Ravi, congratulations, and thank you very much for agreeing to be our ninth SR Nathan uh, uh, Fellow. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Director. May I now invite our guest of honor, DPM Hing, to deliver his remarks. DPM, please. Mr. Janavas Levant, Director IPS, Mr. Ravi Menand, Ninth SR Nadan Fellow, and uh, Ladies and gentlemen, a very good afternoon to everyone. IPS established the SR Nathan Fellowship, as you have heard from uh, Janadas, for the study of Singapore in 2012, in honour of our sixth president. The fellowship was set up to support research on Singapore policy issues. IPS appointed Ravi as the ninth SR Nathan Fellow, and Ravi delivered a series of four lectures in July last year. I honestly wonder how Ravi managed to do it while running the central bank, especially last year. <laughs> now, today we are here to launch his book, which is based on his lectures. I have the privilege of knowing Ravi well. We were colleagues in the public service, where he's known for his thoughtful views. When I entered politics in 2011, Ravi took over me as the managing director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. He has done a brilliant job, and he now has a distinction of being Singapore's longest-serving central banker. 
As coordinating minister for economic policies, I work closely with Ravi and others in transforming our economy. His advice is one that I greatly value. So it came as no surprise when Ravi was appointed as our Nadan Fellow. And when Janadas approached me to launch the book, I think I agreed immediately. Those of you who know Ravi well will be familiar with his deep thinking and flair for writing. In a previous speech, he made references to the three musketeers. In another, he spoke about Goldilocks and the three bears. In the first of this lecture series, Ravi outlined the four horsemen, demographics, inequality, technology, climate. Indeed, these are four tectonic shifts that are altering the global landscape. In his first lecture, he proffered a possible fifth horseman, pandemics. So you see, Ravi as a good central banker, believes in stable but gently rising prices. And having been a central banker myself, I would add to the slope of Ravi's inflation slightly. Because less than a year later, a sixth horseman has emerged, conflict. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has ruptured decades of peace in Europe and global ramifications on food, energy, and supply chains. Under the Biden administration, the strategic competition between the US and China has intensified. The temperature has gone up in hotspots like Taiwan, which could reach boiling point if there are any miscalculations. So while there are few known horsemen, which Ravi has, had outlined, there are also other horsemen, not in our direct field of view yet, which might rear their, their head unexpectedly. We live in a more complex and uncertain world, and the four horsemen could well turn into a cavalry. We might not know when and where the cavalry would strike, but if we stood still, we are certain of being mowed down when it does. So having captured our attention in his next three lectures, Ravi argued for what it means for Singapore to be a nation, an economy, and a society rolled into one. I have several observations in response to this lecture series, but I'll keep them brief, for I'm sure you'll want to hear directly from the horseman, from Ravi. My first obs observation is groupthink, more specifically, the lack of it, which is a good thing. In his speeches, Ravi outlined his thoughts on what we needed to do to create a better future, from increasing carbon taxes to raising wealth taxes and studying having a minimum wage. Coming from the establishment, some were surprised by his candidness. There was even a media article about whether Ravi has gone rogue. <laughs> I assure you that he has not. Within government, issues are often extensively deliberated on with opposing viewpoints. And it's not just Ravi, but many others contributing to the contestation of ideas. A plurality of views is natural and should be encouraged. It is the rigor of policy formulation and subsequent implementation. But we must not let a divergence of views lead to paralysis. On a spectrum, groupthink and gridlock are on the extreme ends. Gridlock can be as dangerous, if not more, than groupthink. 
As with most things, we need to find a path that works in our context. We need to take a pragmatic and constructive approach to build common ground. While values may drive our conviction, taking an overly ideological approach could very easily lead to gridlock. While we want a diversity of views and debate the different perspectives rigorously, we also need leaders with a vision and courage to decide on a course of action. And once a decision is taken, it's time to act collectively and decisively with all hands on deck. And we must periodically review the choices made to see whether we could do even better. This is how it works in Singapore and this has made us successful. So my first observation is that we have a very healthy do dose of productive pluralism in Singapore, which we must continue to harness. And Ravi's lectures adds much to this. My second observation is that much of what different groups of Singaporeans aspire towards is not fundamentally, are not fundamentally that different. A vibrant economy, a more equal society, a more sustainable environment, and more. But policy choices come with trade-offs. This is where perspectives may differ. The benefits and costs may apply to each of us differently. We may not give the same weight to the same consideration. Consequently, we may have divergent approaches on how to approach the same issue. So we must not let differences on how to make these trade-offs hold us back from achieving our common aspirations. Take lower wage workers. There is broad consensus to uplift the wages of these workers to create a more equal society. How much, how fast, how to implement, how the cost increase should be borne? This is where there are different perspectives from businesses, unions, service buyers, the community, to the workers themselves. I do not intend to go into the policy minutiae in my speech, nor the various partnership models to build consensus and to governize action. But I'm glad we introduced the progressive wage model, which is making tangible improvements to the lives of lower wage workers. The differences in views are perhaps smaller than what they are often made out to be. If we make the effort to understand the different perspectives and appreciate the constraints, the gaps can be further narrowed. This is how, how we make the trade-offs can shift over time. What might, what might be less practical now might work in the future. So any policy discourse will be an ongoing one with our policies reviewed and refreshed over time. I've given the example of lower wage workers, but the same dynamics could be said of wealth taxes and other social policies, and also our economic policies. Most of us want a growing and vibrant economy that will create better jobs with better lives for our people. But how do we keep pace with disruption? How do we make the transition to a more digital and greener economy? How do we equip our workers with the skills to succeed while also attracting the top global talents needed to propel our growth sectors and complement our workforce? PM spoke about this at NDR on Sunday. It is important that we acknowledge what different groups of Singaporeans may have different approaches. We do in fact have very similar aspirations. The glass is 
often more than half full. This gives us greater confidence that we can grow what we have in common even as we ensure that each of our voices are heard. And this brings me to my third observation, to need, the need to ensure that discourse grows the common space and not diminish it. Ravi spoke about the celebration of diversity in his last lecture. Indeed, diversity is one of the features of our multiracial and multicultural society, one that we should continue to embrace and celebrate. But we do not need to look too far back to know that the harmonious state of affairs that we have today is not one that should be taken for granted. My generation grew up during the race riots. Race and religion will remain fault lines. As society becomes more diverse, more fault lines will emerge. There are difficult and deeply emotive issues that societies must grapple with, not just locally, but globally. We must learn to handle these issues sensitively and with forbearance. Progress cannot be made by advocating loudly for a single viewpoint. Take the discourse on Section 377A, which PM addressed recently at NDR. This is a long-standing and deep-seated issue with strong views for and against a repeal. Through extensive consultation taken closed door in a candid and constructive manner, we are moving towards a new equilibrium. PM announced that we'll work towards a repeal of Section 377A while amending the Constitution to protect the current definition of marriage from being challenged in court. DPM Wong also gave his assurances that the definition of marriage would not change under his watch should the PAP be re-elected in the next GE. A new balance would not be possible if people insist only on pushing across their views or venture into polemics. Singaporeans, by and large, cherish a harmony and common space that we have. Even for difficult and emotive issues, parties have approached dialogue with respect, restraint and rationality. Arriving at the new equilibrium on Section 377A will show that even for contentious issues, there can be room for accommodation. But we all need to do our part to carry out the dialogue in a way that will move society forward and cause those whose actions undermine the harmony that we so treasure. Let me now turn back to the S.R. Nardin Fellowship. The late S.R. Nardin was an accomplished civil servant, a distinguished diplomat, and Singapore's longest serving president. I've benefited greatly from the advice that he has given me over the years. Through this fellowship, his legacy lives on. Ravi joins a, dis a list of distinguished fellows, eight before him, with a total of 12 appointed to date. Together, they cover a wide range of topics and come from varied backgrounds. As importantly, they have pushed the bounds of thinking and promoted public understanding and discourse on critical issues of national interest. This lecture series could not have come at a better time as DPM Lawrence Wong is leading the ongoing Forward Singapore effort to collectively renew our social compact. Singapore can only succeed if we work together to shape our future. 
with each of us doing our part. I said this through the past, through past experiences with our Singapore conversation and the Singapore Together movement. I hope, my hope is that this book will inspire you and other Singaporeans to step forward to shape the next chapter of our nation's history. Not just to contribute ideas, but also to put good ideas into action. In this way, we can continue to be an inspiring nation, an inclusive society, and an innovative economy. So do give DPM Wong and the 4G team your fullest support. And let me once again congratulate Ravi on your lecture series and on the launch of this book. Thank you. Thank you, DPM Hing. May I now invite Mr. Ravi Menon to deliver his remarks. Mr. Menon, please. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, DPM Hings Wicket, Janadas Devan, ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues. Thank you for coming. Uh, DPM Heng, thank you for doing the honours of launching this book and for your kind words. You have consistently stood for many of the ideas that I advocated in my lectures, promoting innovation, keeping Singapore open, looking out for those less fortunate than ourselves, and most of all, an embracing ethos of setting aside our differences and coming together for the common good of Singapore. Thank you for your leadership, and thank you for gracing this occasion. Janadas, thank you for your persistence in persuading me to give these lectures. Uh, you nailed it, as I recall, at a lunch we had in late 2020. What I cannot understand is why I not only agreed to do the lectures, but I also paid for the lunch. <laughs> I can only say we have the right person as Chief of Government Communications. But Janadas has done our nation a great service by facilitating through the IPS Northern Lectures over the last eight years a deep varied and priceless body of work on Singapore. There are many others whom I'm indebted to for making these lectures possible. I've expressed my appreciation to them in the foreword to the book. There's one group that I want to warmly acknowledge. The more than 200 individuals who wrote to me offering thanks, praise, and encouragement. It was humbling to read their emails and letters, some from people I did not know, some from people who shared their insights and hopes. And I quoted a few of these in the subsequent lectures. Some said the lectures resonated with them, others that they learned from them, and yet others that they were inspired. Some leaders made the lectures recommended reading for their staff. The Civil Service College is looking into converting the lectures into learning objects. Besides those who wrote to me directly, many others offered comments on social media, agreeing or disagreeing with what I shared. 
To all of them, my heartfelt thanks. You are the thousand points of light that I spoke of in my last lecture, the multiple sources of strength that make up an inspiring nation. I wrote these lectures out of a conviction that Singapore can do better. It is about a refreshed approach, building on our fundamentals, while responding to four tectonic shifts, aging demographics, rising inequality, technological disruption, and climate change. And as DPM Hing just reminded us, pandemics, conflict, and what have you. Innovation must be at the heart of our economy. Singapore is no longer playing catch up. Innovation will be our main source of future growth and prosperity. And there are three areas where we can be truly innovative. Export our domestic services like healthcare and education. Digitalize our economy end to end and make our economy green and sustainable. Harnessing technology to create new value and enhance efficiency will be the way to achieve productivity growth and rising wages. But even more than technology, people will be critical to building an innovative economy. We must attract the best global talents as well as continually build our own skills and capabilities. We cannot do one and not the other. Inclusion must be the hallmark of our society. To stay cohesive as one people, we must be a place where everyone has an opportunity to move up in life, and everyone is treated with dignity and respect. We must lift our low-wage workers, sustain median wage growth, temper wealth inequality, and promote income mobility. Our social inclusion agenda must be centered on good jobs and rising wages, rather than high taxes or widespread transfers. We need safety nets for a basic level of support to some form of minimum wage and an enhanced workfare income supplement. We need a trampoline to help those who have lost their jobs bounce back through re-employment support. And we need escalators to enable people to move up a trajectory of rising wages. For those at the lower third of the wage ladder, this is through an expanded progressive wage model. For those in the middle third, this is through reclaiming jobs for Singaporeans from lower wage foreign workers. And across the spectrum, we must professionalize every job in Singapore with competency frameworks, training pathways, certifications, career roadmaps, and the opportunity to excel in our chosen vocation. And we must make lifelong learning a reality for every one of us, from kindergarten to the end of our lives. Finally, the true test of an inclusive society is about how well we look out for the least among us, our aged destitute, our disabled, our special needs children, and our migrant workers. Inspiration based on values and driven by purpose is what will make our nation great. An innovative economy is not without risk. An inclusive society is not without cost. Whether we are willing to bear the risk or pay the price, 
will boil down to values and purpose, who we are, what we stand for, and where we want to go. People are inspired when they focus on something larger than themselves. The Singapore Synthesis sets out five values that could make us an inspiring nation. Can we be a meritocracy of hope that is broad, inclusive, and compassionate? Can we be a beacon for diversity that is gracious, that is open to different views, and empathetic to the lived reality of others? Can we be a city of giving, driven by a spirit of volunteerism and philanthropy? Can we, a heart, can we have a heart for the environment to do the right thing for a sustainable future? Can we summon a thousand points of light shining from every quarter of our country, an active citizenry, innovative businesses, a vibrant civil society, and many other sources of strength, brightening and energizing our nation? There is a coherence across the ideas in the Singapore synthesis. Making our domestic services more productive and exportable goes hand in hand with digitalizing end-to-end -end business processes in these industries, professionalizing these jobs, and fostering a broad and inclusive meritocracy. The transition to a high productivity, high wage, high cost economy will not be without dislocations which is why strengthened safety nets and trampolines to support workers are important. The impetus for restructuring towards a greener economy comes not only from economic incentive, but a societal value with people having a heart for the environment and willing to pay a price today for a more sustainable tomorrow. The social consensus in favor of global talent, open markets, and wealth accumulation is stronger if there is better protection for the median Singapore worker, a more progressive taxation of wealth, and a stronger spirit of philanthropy. The era of cheap money, cheap labor, and cheap energy is over. There has been too much borrowing, too much inequality, and too much carbon emissions globally. Interest rates are not going back to the zero lower bound that we have seen in the last two decades. The cost of borrowing will be higher, more reflective of time horizons and risk premiums. Domestically, with a shrinking labor force, extension of progressive wages to more sectors of the economy, and increase in qualifying salaries for bringing in non-resident workers, we can no longer rely on cheap labor to power our economy and society. And we should not, as we forge a more inclusive society. The cost of energy can only go up as the world and Singapore seek to reduce carbon emissions in a race against time to cap global warming and avoid catastrophic climate change. It is not a bad thing that money, labor, and energy are being prized better to better reflect their relative scarcities. And the economy needs to adjust to these new cost structures. And the most effective way is through pervasive innovation and skills upgrading as the basis for higher productivity and wages across the board. Is the Singapore synthesis too ambitious? Perhaps. 
But can we not do with a dose of ambition to spur bolder action? Shortly after separation from Malaysia in 1965, when our prospects looked gloomy and our future unsteady, our founding Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, proclaimed, and I quote, in 10 years' time, this will be a metropolis. Never fear, unquote. We created an industrial estate out of mosquito-infested swamps and an island to house the world's third largest oil refining center despite not producing a single drop of oil. We became the first country in the world to close the water loop. We collect every drop of used water, treat and purify it, and turn much of it into clean water again. The Singapore story is one of relentless ambition and achievement. Is the Singapore synthesis too idealistic? <clears throat> Maybe, but can we not do with a touch of idealism to summon our best instincts rather than our worst fears? This nation was founded on principles that were idealistic for their times. A multiracial society amid the realities of race riots and strife. A meritocracy among the dominant systems of class and privilege. And an ethos of integrity and excellence in public life amid widespread corruption and incompetence. It took courage and faith to make these ideals living realities today. At the same time, we must see the world for what it is with all its threats and challenges, some of which I described in my first lecture as the Four Horsemen. Since those lectures, a major war has, broke out, has broken out between the two largest countries in Europe. Global inflation has surged to its highest rates in four decades, and geopolitical tensions have sharply escalated in Northeast Asia. And meanwhile, climate change continues to gather pace while the world is struggling to make headway on the transition to net zero. I gave a somewhat somber speech on this just last week. So the Singapore synthesis is about holding idealism and realism in equal measure. Uncertainty in the world around us need not obscure our own clarity of purpose. Our journey cannot be one of merely solving the problems that come our way. It must be guided by a vision of what we want to be and how we want to get there. In a sense, this is what the current Forward Singapore process is also about. And I hope the Singapore synthesis can make a small contribution to the Forward Singapore exercise. If the lectures in this book help to spark fresh ideas and thoughtful conversations about the kind of economy, society, and nation we want to be, I would be very thankful. Let me close with a well-known verse from Shakespeare. And I quote, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads us to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures, unquote. There is a tide in the affairs of the world and Singapore. Let us not fear it. Let us take it and ride it together. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Mr. Menon. Please remain on stage. May I now invite DPM Hing and director to the stage for the launch of the book, please. We will now launch the book. Mr. Menon will now present DPM Hing with a copy of the book. And now, Director will present Mr. Menon with a token of appreciation from IPS. Please remain on stage for a photo together. The book is now launched. Thank you everyone for attending and have a good evening ahead.